Good morning, Sovereign Grace. So thankful to be able to worship and gather with you this morning. For those of you who don't know me, my name is Russell Horner. I'm one of the pastors here at the church, and this morning it's my privilege to continue to preach out of the Psalms. So Psalm 58 is where we'll be this morning. Another glorious Psalm of David that is sadly neglected, pushed to the side because it's one of those imprecatory Psalms, probably one of the most infamous ones where David calls out curses on his enemies. I know it makes us uncomfortable, but God can and will teach us a lot from this psalm if we would attend to it. So Psalm 58, verses 1 through 11. Let's read the word of the Lord together. To the choir master, according to do not destroy, a mictim of David. Do you indeed decree what is right, you gods? Do you judge the children of man uprightly? No, in your hearts you devise wrongs. Your hands deal out violence on the earth. The wicked are estranged from the womb. They go astray from birth, speaking lies. They have venom, like the venom of a serpent, like the deaf adder that stops its ear so that it does not hear the voice of charmers or of the cunning enchanter. O God, break the teeth in their mouths. Tear out the fangs of the young lions, O Lord. Let them vanish like water that runs away. When he aims his arrows, let them be blunted. Let them be like the snail that dissolves into slime like the stillborn child who never sees the sun. Sooner than your pots can feel the heat of thorns, whether green or ablaze, may he sweep them away. The righteous will rejoice when he sees the vengeance. He will bathe his feet in the blood of the wicked. Mankind will say, surely, There is a reward for the righteous. Surely there is a God who judges on earth. This is the word of our Lord. Let's pray. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of your kingdom is the scepter of uprightness. For you have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. And Lord, because we know we have been freed from our sin and wickedness by the atoning work of Jesus Christ, our Savior, we acknowledge, Lord, that you call us to do the same in your word. You call us to hate what is evil, hold fast to what is good, to never avenge ourselves, but to leave it to you, Lord, the God of wrath, the God who says, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. Lord, please help us today as we read your word to rejoice in the hope of future judgment, to be patient in tribulation, to be constant in prayer even for our enemies as we wait for your son to return and set all things right and destroy evil for good. Lord, we long for that day. We pray for that day. So come quickly, Lord Jesus. 
In his name we pray. Amen. Well, I'm curious, when you watch the news or, I guess, read the news or hear the news, however you take your news in, do you ever feel like you're just watching our world fall apart? Does anybody else feel that way? Is it just me? I don't know about you, but I look at the world and I see the world just coming unraveled. I see wickedness just spreading. And it seems like every day we see wars and rumors of World War III all over the world. Christians are actually being persecuted more than ever. Many of our brothers and sisters all around the world are being beaten, thrown into prison, losing their homes, their kids are being taken from them. Some of them are even losing their lives for Christ's sake. And here at home in the United States, it's not much better. We had Roe versus Wade overturned last year, which is a great thing, but that caused many states like our own to double down on their support and funding of abortion so that abortion on demand, killing of the unborn would continue in the name of freedom. Human trafficking is on the rise all over the world when it's exposed in scandals of our elite or when it's exposed in movies like the recent one, The Sound of Freedom, people are bothered by it for a minute, but that quickly passes. It doesn't seem like we're bothered by this great injustice in our world. And to top it all off, homosexuality and gender dysphoria are actually trending among our youth. And there's new legislation being proposed almost daily, it seems, even in our state, to limit our ability to speak out against these things, especially in our schools and the church. I mean, believe it or not, it's getting harder and harder to say some of the most simplest things that we all used to accept. Like a biological man is actually a man. Like only women can get pregnant. That marriage is between a man and a woman. You can't even say that anymore. You have to say a biological man and a biological woman. It's insane. I feel like I'm living in this world that's completely turned upside down. I'm sure you can relate. And I think what's worst of all is the people that are in charge of this mess. Some of that even created this mess. The lawmakers, the rulers... The legislators who can actually change things and even sometimes the leaders in the church who can speak out against this evil are silent in the face of wickedness. Some even go as far as encouraging it or supporting it. Now to be fair, there are some politicians that stand up and fight for justice. And we should vote for men and women that would do that. To stand up for the truth and support pastors and teachers that would call good, good and not good, evil. And fight for the truth in this world. But many, many rulers and leaders in our world don't stand up for what's right. They don't enforce just laws. They don't call out lies, which is why God gave them the power and the authority and even the ministry in the first place. Brothers and sisters, this is not some dystopian novel I'm describing here. It's not some crazy fantasy. This is our world, the world we live in right now. These things are happening all around us. So my question for all of us then is how should Christians 
respond to all this terrible injustice in our world, especially unjust rulers. Jesus tells us, love your enemies. Turn the other cheek. Endure suffering patiently. And we should do those things. We should continue to do those things. But as Christians, is that our only option? Is that all we have to do? Is there anything we can do when the authorities God has placed over us turn on us and try to destroy us and try to take out Christ's church? I believe there is. I believe David shows us three responses that we can have in times like this. Really what David does in the psalm is he's answering that initial question I propose to all of you. How can Christians respond to injustice and really unjust rulers in our world? David gives us three responses, and I'm going to spoil that by answering that question for you right now. The first, he says, we need to condemn them. We need to rebuke unjust rulers. He says that in verses 1 through 5. Secondly, we need to call out to God for justice. Pray for justice in this world, verses 6 through 9. And then we should celebrate God's coming judgment, verses 10 through 11. So there you go. They're all C's, so you remember. Condemn unjust rulers, call out to God for justice, and celebrate God's coming judgment. Let's look at David's condemnation of unjust rulers in verse 1. David says, Do you indeed decree what is right, you gods? Do you judge the children of man uprightly? Now you have to admit, when you look at this first verse, it's a strange way to start the song. He doesn't address God, he addresses gods, little g, and plural. What's going on here? Who are these gods? Are these spiritual forces? Or what is David talking about here? Well, our clue to who these people are is in the historical context of the song. But it doesn't come from the normal place. You might have noticed in the superscript, there's no historical detail there. Read the superscript again with me. It says, to the choir master, according to do not destroy a mictim of David. And normally David tells us when this psalm took place, but we don't see it here. The only clue we have here is the tune, do not destroy. Now, unfortunately, we don't know what that tune is or what it really means in many ways, but we do know there's only two other psalms that have that tune. And both of those psalms are on both sides of this psalm, Psalm 57 and Psalm 59. And both of those psalms have a clear historical context. They were written during the time when David was on the run from King Saul. And so these three psalms are grouped together to describe this period in David's life where he's on the run, hiding in caves. And so these gods here are not spiritual forces out there, but they are rulers, people that act like God in their world, people like Saul, for example, using his power and authority to do wicked things. And the second clue to who these gods are actually comes from the word itself. Now, just to be completely honest, verse 1 is so difficult to translate from the Hebrew. If you read all the English translations, it comes in so many different varieties. And the problem is, the word that David uses for gods, it's this shortened word, elim, but this word actually could be shorthanded for Elohim. I'm sure you've probably heard that word. The word is used often in the Bible. So maybe David is shortening that up here, and he's calling them gods. 
That's the way the ESV and the NASB goes. The NIV interprets it a bit and says, well, these are mighty ones or rulers. They kind of have the same idea. And if you take it this way, then David is mocking these men. You think you're God, but you're not acting like God. You're little gods, puny gods, false representations of God, abusing your power. That's kind of how he mocks them in Psalm 82. Or this word, this small word, Elam, can actually be literally translated silence. And that's the way that the King James goes. Do you indeed speak righteousness, you silent ones? Or if you have an ESV with the footnotes, the footnotes actually gives you the alternate translation. Do you indeed decree what is right in silence? So what is this? Is it God's? Is it silent or silent ones? Well, I actually think it's a little bit of both. I think David may be employing some kind of wordplay here. He's saying, look, these are mighty men that set themselves up like little gods, but they're not righteous. They live unrighteously. They support and decree what is false. They don't judge uprightly, like it says in verse 1. But that's why God put them in the office to begin with. But here they are, in the face of wickedness. They're silent. Silent, as Saul goes on this murderous rampage towards David, an innocent man, and kills anybody else that interacts with them. They won't speak up. They're cowards. They're tyrants. They betrayed their calling. They've used their power to fight God. Why are these men doing this? These are rulers in God's people. Israel's rulers. They should know better. Why are they doing this? Well, David explains it to us in verses 2 through 5. Essentially, he says, this is revealing what's really going on in their heart. The wickedness that is already in their heart. Look at verse 2. David says, no, as in no, you don't judge uprightly. No, you don't decree what is right, verse 1. And then he says, in your hearts you devise wicked. There's the source of the problem. Your hearts you devise wicked. Your hands deal it out, literally weigh out violence on the earth. I think David is mocking these leaders here, especially at the end of verse 2, because this picture of weighing out refers to the weighing out of justice. You might have seen the picture of the woman that has her eyes covered and holding the scales. We still use that symbol in many places today. The scales of justice. There's supposed to be balance in these scales on God's behalf to sort out righteousness among God's people, but they're tipping the scales towards injustice and wickedness. And all they weigh out is violence in the world. They're doing exactly what the wicked do in Proverbs 28. Verse 4, those who forsake the law praise the wicked. There's an important lesson for us there. If you ignore the law, you forsake the law, it's not that you've become neutral. You're siding with the wicked. But those who keep the law strive against them, fight against the wicked. And that's not what they're doing. Now, this verse is actually a really good example of how the Bible presents sin. It's not a mistake. It's not something we fall into or trip into or stumble into. Sin is not a youthful indiscretion. 
It's not a moment of brain lapse. It's not a result of circumstances. It's not a result of victimization. Boy, that's popular in our world today. You notice every villain in every story needs a backstory because we need to figure out how they were victimized so that would explain why they victimize other people. Oh, that evil doesn't come from their heart. It comes from their trauma. That's the way we see sin in our world. But no, the Bible says no. Evil flows out of us. Our wicked heart. Jesus said the wickedness in our heart comes out of our mouth. Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks, Jesus says in Matthew 12, verse 34. And David says here, no, the wickedness in our heart comes out of our hands, out of our actions. Your heart devises wrongs, and so your hands deal it out. You want to know what's really going on in your heart? Pay attention to your mouth. Pay attention to what you do with your hands. Those are downstream from your wicked heart that is within. But you see, their corruption runs much much deeper than just a moment of sin. Their corruption was their whole life. It started from the very beginning. Look at verse 3. The wicked are estranged from the womb. Estranged from who? Estranged from God. They're among God's people, but they're estranged. They're strangers to God. They go astray from birth, speaking lies from the very beginning. I hope this verse actually reminds you of David. Because he said this of himself and all humanity by extension. He says this in Psalm 51. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity. In sin did my mother conceive me. All of us were conceived in sin. David is speaking here of original sin. And by original sin, I don't mean the original act that caused the world to stumble, fall into sin like we talked about earlier. No, this is the condition of the entire human race. We are all conceived in sin. All enemies, strangers of God. Dead in our trespasses and sin. Following Satan, the prince of the power of the air. Who were by nature children of wrath. Like the rest of mankind. Paul says that in Ephesians 2. Oh, I know that's really hard to hear. And accept that you are really this wicked. It's probably the hardest doctrine in the Bible to accept, but it is the easiest to prove. Just take a long look into your heart. Look at your life. See what comes out of your mouth and what comes out of your hands, and you tell me that you're not totally depraved. And if you're still not convinced, have kids. <laughs> I mean that all serious. Have kids, volunteer in our nursery. You will see, you don't have to teach them how to be wicked. It flows constantly from their heart because it's in all of us. Well, then what's the difference between David and the people he's condemning? What's the difference between us, God's people who repented and the enemies out there that oppress us? What's the difference between the righteous and the wicked here if we all have these sinful hearts? Well, Derek Kidner, a commentator on the Psalms, actually clarifies it really well. He says the difference between David and his enemies is one of degree, not of kind. You see what he's saying there? It's not that David was born righteous and these men weren't. It's not that David just had a better start than them. No, by God's grace, David and all of God's people who have been called out of their wickedness. God has given them a new heart. He's given them the gift of faith that they might repent, turn from the wickedness that they were born into. 
He has softened their heart and given them the heart of flesh so that when they repent, they might learn to love what God loves and hate what God hates. You see the only difference between David and these wicked rulers? The only difference between you and I and the most wicked, terrible politician you could possibly imagine is grace. That's it. God has graciously restrained his people's heart from going as far as it would. Restrained the evil from within. God has enabled his people to see their own sin, to repent, to turn from it. Oh, think about that the next time you try to curse down a politician. You try to slander somebody, a fallen leader in the church or somebody in the community. Think about what's really going on in their heart before you say, how could they? I would never do that. If not for the grace of God, that's exactly where all of us would be. That should be humbling. But that doesn't mean we don't condemn it and still call it out. We can see their further hardness and unwillingness to repent in verse 4. They won't listen. Look what verse 4 says. They have the venom, like the venom of a serpent, like the death adder that stops its ear so that it does not hear the voice of charmers or of the cunning enchanter. David is drawing the lines really clearly here between the good guys and the bad guys. David likens these rulers to serpents. He's not just saying they're wicked people. He's saying they're seed of the serpent. They are lying because they are of their father, the devil. As Jesus says in John chapter 8, They are of the seed of the serpent, which makes it really clear who David is. He is of the line and lineage of the seed of the woman. He's on God's side. So David's saying, look, this isn't just a skirmish. This isn't an issue just in Israel. This is the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman in conflict, in battle, just like the Bible says it was. How do we know that David is not, not of the seed of the serpent? Well, because David isn't deaf to God like these men who cannot be charmed. That's an interesting image, isn't it? I know probably none of us have seen snakes being charmed besides movies, Hollywood, like Indiana Jones or or something like that, but that's a real thing. There are people out there that can charm snakes and by their movement or music or whatever it is, they can put them under the spell in a way where they won't strike or they can control them in some way. But David is saying these men cannot be controlled. These men cannot be charmed. They won't listen to reason or truth or God's word. They won't repent and turn from their wicked ways, even when David rebukes them and condemns their evil. They won't turn from it. They continue to spread evil all over the world. And again, what sets David apart from these men is that he listens to rebuke. You remember, it was just a few psalms ago, Psalm 51, David was repenting of some of the worst sin we've ever seen. David betrayed his God, betrayed his nation by sinning in adultery with Bathsheba, possibly even rape. And then he goes and murders her husband, Uriah, to cover it up. Horrible evil, potentially even worse evil than the men he's rebuking. But what makes David different? When Nathan comes to him in 2 Samuel 12 and condemns his sin, rebukes him, what does David do? He repents. He listens 
to God's rebuke, God's word. He turns from his, his evil ways. He wrote Psalm 51 to remind himself and all God's people of what really happened and teaches us how to repent. These men won't do that. They won't heed God's word. They cannot be charmed and turn from their sin. Oh, do you see how wicked and corrupt these men are? They've been given power and authority by God to keep the peace, to establish justice on his behalf. But these men are silent when they should have spoken. They're deaf when they should have heard God's word. And they're passive when they should have acted justly. These are wicked men. What can God's people do when these kind of rulers cannot be charmed, cannot be turned from their ways, when they won't hear this rebuke? What option do we have? We can pray for justice, which is what David does next. So we've seen David's condemnation of their ways, and now we see David's call for justice to God. And first, David prays for justice in a number of different ways here, but he first prays that God would make these men harmless, that God would stop their evil so it doesn't destroy anything else. Look at verse 6. He says, Oh God, break the teeth in their mouths. That's a horrible image. It just hurts me even thinking about what that would look like. David is talking about snakes though here still. Serpents, that's what he just called them. So this is Genesis 3.15 language. Lord, crush their head, break their teeth just like you promised. Don't let their teeth sink into any more victims. Don't let their venom, their evil be spread over the whole earth. Destroy them. So they can't harm anyone else. And then he changes the image a little bit and he talks about lions. Look at the middle of verse 6. Tear out the fangs of the young lions, O Lord, O Yahweh. Now when you hear young lions, don't think cute, cuddly lion cubs, right? It sounds like terrible to tear out their fangs. That's not the picture here. The picture here of young lions, think of young as being young as in their prime. At the peak of their strength. I actually learned this week that lions are most dangerous within the first few years. Because they are at the peak of their strength, but they're also the most impulsive. The most eager to attack. The most terrifying and ferocious at that moment. So David is praying out to his God, Yahweh, the Lord, the covenant keeper. Keep your covenant and protect me. Protect your people from these ferocious enemies. Don't let them sink their teeth in and drag us away and devour us. That's what they want to do, but Lord, stop them in their tracks so they won't harm anyone. He continues with another image, verse seven. Let them vanish like water or floodwaters that run away. We actually know a lot about floods and water this year, don't we? I feel like this is the year I've heard about floods more than I have in my whole life because we actually have water here in the valley. And we know what kind of damage floods can do, not just here locally, but all over the world. Damages from floods are catastrophic. And in the ancient world, floodwaters would just be so terrible, they had no technology to really fight against them in many ways. We still don't in many ways. But all they could do when they see the flood coming is pray and brace for impact. And so David is saying here, I see the evil flood of these wicked men coming upon me, but Lord, take this flood and divert the waters. Let it run off into the river. Let it run off into the dry and thirsty ground and just be soaked up 
So all their strength, all their destruction, all their fury will come to nothing. They won't destroy anything or anyone. And he changes the image again in verse 7. In the middle of verse 7 he says, when he aims his arrows, probably speaking of slanderous words. That's the way this is often portrayed in the Psalms, especially the darts of the evil one. When he aims his arrows, let them be blunted. Let them be dull and useless. I don't know about you, but this reminds me of when I was a kid and actually tried to make a bone arrow. Kids, if you've ever done this for yourself, I bet many of you young boys have. I see some of you smiling right now, but you take that stick. I thought was a great, strong bendable stick, put a rope on it. I remember taking a smaller stick and sharpening it with my knife, thinking this is going to be lethal, you know, thinking this is going to be amazing. And I remember shooting that first arrow and it just shoo, shot off to the side and it was a mess. I couldn't hit anything. And when I finally got close enough, cause it only went like five, 10 feet. When I got close enough to hit a tree, it hit the tree and just dropped. And the more I tried it, the more the arrow got blunted. It couldn't pierce anything. It was the most useless weapon of all time. And this is the image I picture in my head. Lord, make their weapons like that flimsy, lousy little arrow. They look dangerous and ferocious on the outside. Lord, make their slanderous attacks useless. Let them miss their mark. Let them not hurt the people that they try to seek to harm. Four images in a row, David again and again says, Lord, render them harmless. Bust out their teeth, pull out their fangs, divert the floodwaters, blunt their arrows. Lord, let them destroy no one. And then he gives three more images, but he changes the focus just slightly. David begins to pray that, Lord, destroy their legacy. Destroy the effects of wickedness in the sense that they will be forgotten that they will be unknown in this world. Look at verse 8. David says, Let them be like the snail or the slug that dissolves into slime. Again, this brings up another boy memory, probably some of you boys. Apparently that's a theme today. Sorry about that. But if you've ever seen a slug or a snail and you poured salt on it as a young man and seen it just kind of dissolve away, that's what David is praying for here. He's saying, essentially, look, these rulers are like snails. They're leaving a mess, a trail everywhere they go. They contaminate everything and everyone, leaving their filth behind them. So David prays, Lord, melt them away in your wrath. Let the slime of their evil just dissolve from existence as if it was never even there. Then he gets really graphic with this next image. Look at the end of verse 8. Like the stillborn child who never sees the sun. Lord, make it as if they were never born. Make them dead to the world. Lord, take them out before they have any kind of rule, before they have any kind of power and authority to abuse. Lord, destroy them. Destroy their legacy, their evil, the works that they spread around the world, make it come to nothing, Lord. And then he finishes it with one more image. And you notice there's seven images here, seven 
curses, imprecations that David prays here. They're all praying for the same thing. So why pray seven times? Well, one, I think David is teaching us how to meditate. Teaching us how to look at truths from different angles and to teach us this is how you pray. Pray to God. Think about these things. But also, the number seven is very important in the Bible. As we know from Genesis and the seven days of creation, and as we've seen in Revelation time and time again, seven is this number of completion, number of perfection. So I believe David is also praying, Lord, come and destroy evil completely. Come in perfect justice and rid the world from these evildoers. That's what he prays in verse 9. Sooner than your pots can feel the heat of thorns, whether green or ablaze, may he sweep them away. Lord, let the wicked ones be snuffed out like a fire that doesn't even get going. Before it can heat a pot, before it can devour anything, Lord, blow them out. Rid the world of their evil for good. I wonder how you're hearing these things. I'm sure there are some of us that read these things and think, wow, David, you kind of crossed the line here. You're asking that they would never be born, that God would snuff them out like a fire? David, that doesn't sound very Christ-like. doesn't sound loving at all. It doesn't sound like turn the other cheek. It doesn't sound like praying good for your enemies as Jesus taught us to pray. Now, I'm sure we probably feel that way in many ways because we haven't suffered in the way that David has at the hand of evil men. We might feel a little differently if we've seen our loved ones killed, our homes destroyed. We've seen wicked men destroy our nation completely. We might live long enough to see that one day, and then we might feel a little differently. But look, even if we haven't suffered Like David has. Do we hate evil enough to pray like this? To pray, Lord, I wish that Margaret Sanger had never been born. I wish that evil men like Hitler and Stalin were like stillborns that never saw the sun. Lord, I wish that leaders who pervert justice and promote sexual perversions and spread their lies about who you are, Lord, and who your people are. I wish that they never saw the light of day. Do we hate evil enough to pray that way? Because we're commanded to not only love what God loves, but hate what God hates. Do you ever pray for vengeance? Pray that God would come in perfect justice on this fallen world? Or have we just grown so numb to the evil in this world? Time and time again when you see it, you just figure, well, it's probably better to be silent like these leaders because to stand against it could be dangerous. Well, brothers and sisters, we need to learn to pray like this, to first condemn their wicked acts, to rebuke these wicked people, to call them to repent, to believe, to trust in Jesus, to pray God turn their wicked hearts around, turn them from this evil course But if they don't repent, then we're not the people to go take vengeance into our own hand and go bomb adoption clinics or whatever it might be, go do harm ourselves. No, we pray for justice. We turn our case over to the just judge, the one that says, vengeance is mine. I will repay. And we trust that God will keep his word.
And he will come and set things right better than we ever could. I'm so glad this psalm doesn't end on this note. It doesn't end in verse 9. You imagine what a terrible cliffhanger this would be. If these are the only rulers in this world, these unjust people, will there ever be justice? Does anyone ever, is anyone ever going to set things right in this world? Well, that's what verses 10 and 11 answer for us. The just judge is coming. So we've seen the condemnation, the cry for justice. Let's look at David's celebration of God's future judgment. Look at verse 10. The righteous will rejoice when he, singular, sees the vengeance. Who are we talking about here? This is not just the righteous people. This is the righteous one. This is talking about the Messiah, the Christ. He will rejoice when he sees justice, when he sees vengeance. And we see in Revelation that his people will rejoice along with him. When he comes and sets all things right, all his people will rejoice. They are finally freed from the evil and wickedness in this world and in our hearts forever. Now some of this has already been fulfilled in Jesus when he came the first time. He came to condemn the wicked rulers in Israel. If you remember, he silenced the wicked rulers when they came to trick him. When they came to falsely accuse him and put him on trial. I believe Augustine's right when he says that at that moment, David's prayers in Psalm 58 were answered. By silencing these men, he broke their teeth, tore out their fangs. He blunted their slanderous arrows, those words that were attacking him. And he was vindicated in the end. He was innocent, even though they put him on a cross. But he was still vindicated because he rose from the dead. Because on that cross, Jesus freed us from the power and penalty of sin. He lived the life we failed to obey. And so he was the perfect sacrifices. All the curses that we deserve. Curses that are far worse than the curses that David prays for here. Fell on him. The wrath of God was quenched in Christ. And when he rose from the dead, the curse of sin in our lives vanished. Like the snail that melts away. Like the water that dissolves into the ground. Or the fire that is quickly blown out. The Bible says all of our sins are thrown away as far as the east is from the west. So that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. See, in that moment, Jesus delivered us from the curse of the fall, but he's not done yet. He continues to intercede for us, praying these prayers that God would come in wrath and destroy our enemies. He intercedes with these words in this psalm. But he's also coming again with vengeance. Look at the middle of verse 10. He, singular again, he will bathe his feet in the blood of the wicked. That's a terrible image, by the way. Bathing in blood. I know we think of bath or maybe shower in blood. It's gross, but that's not really the image here. The idea here is think of a battlefield. Blood filling the ground because all the dead bodies are all over the place. And the victor walks through the battlefield bathing his feet in their blood. Literally trampling his enemies. 
This is the picture of complete defeat. Complete and total victory over the enemies of God. This is a fulfillment of the seed of the woman coming to crush Satan's head forever. And brothers and sisters, Jesus hasn't finished that yet. He's coming again. Isaiah 63 describes a man who comes from Edom. Marching in the greatness of his strength, he will tread the winepress of his wrath until his clothes are soaked in blood. That's the exact image we get in Revelation, isn't it? Revelation 19, verse 13. John says that Jesus will come again wearing robes dipped in blood because he's treading the winepress of the fury of wrath of God the Almighty. That is a terrifying image. It should humble us, but as Christians, we don't have to fear this. We know that all this wrath that will be poured out on our enemies will not be poured out on us because it was already poured out on Christ. The wrath of God was satisfied, propitiated in Jesus so that it will not be on us but for us and against our enemies forever. Resulting in verse 11. Mankind, notice, not just the church, not just the people of God, but all humanity will say, surely there is a reward for the righteous. Surely wickedness is not worth it. Silence is not worth it. All the suffering, the struggle was not in vain because for the righteous, everything will be restored. Everything will be set right in the new creation. God will graciously renew all things. And we will say, verse 11 again, right in the middle, surely there is a God who judges on the earth. How different is this God than these wicked rulers? He will not be silent in the face of evil. He will not be passive when he should act. He will not be deaf to the cries of injustice from his people all over the world. And this is the sovereign Lord that rules in heaven right now. He sees all things, knows all things, and he's coming in vengeance. Not just to judge, but to save his people from their sins. So brothers and sisters, we have great hope that this just judge will set everything right. So we trust him. We look to faith in Christ. And until that day comes, we sing, as we will in a moment, this is my Father's world. Oh, let me not forget that though the wrong seem off so strong, God is the ruler yet. This is my Father's world. The battle is not done. Jesus who died shall be satisfied and earth and heaven will be won. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you are holy and righteous, perfect in all your ways. Fathers, we get a glimpse of your holiness here this morning. I pray for all of us listening, Lord, that we would first humble ourselves. We would repent knowing that we deserve your just and holy wrath for our sin. We would acknowledge, as David did, that we have sinned against you and you only, God. And we would plead forgiveness on the blood of Christ. Pray, Father, that as we do those things, that you would give us the grace and the desire to also pray, Lord, that you would come in justice. You would finish what you started. As we see 
the wickedness and evil in this world, that we would not be led to despair. Lord, we would not try to run from it or be silenced in the face of it. But Lord, we would fervently pray that you would turn the wicked around or that you would take them out. God, help your people to faithfully pray and to look forward to your day of judgment coming when all things will be set right. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.